Lord, we come to you now and we ask, as people that are needy, that you would open up your word to us this morning, that the Holy Spirit would speak from the scriptures to us, encouragement, conviction, uh, whatever we need. And, And Lord, I'm thankful that you know every heart. You know what each person needs to hear this morning. We pray that that would happen and that our hearts, our minds would be ready to receive from the scriptures these powerful living words and that would be implanted in us and it would produce fruit for your glory. Help me be clearer and uh, we lift this up to you in Christ's great name. Amen. So we are at the Christmas time, and you know, to many, uh, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, right? It is. Uh, One of the things that I actually like about Christmas uh, was the family traditions that we practice. I mean, we practiced them when I was a kid, and and then we practiced certain things in my own personal family with... uh, our four kids. And so much of what made Christmas kind of special was the things that we would do prior to that special day when we'd remember the Lord coming into this world being born. One of the things that we used to do as a family was was go out into the wilderness and go on a search for a tree. We would take our four kids and sometimes we're pulling uh, the smallest uh, little sled behind us and we would follow a trail until we could get to a place where there were actually trees that felt like they were worth cutting down. Sometimes that would take uh, quite a bit of time just to find a tree and of course you had to do it in certain areas. Not every area was open to do that but it was a great outing that we would have we did that for several years, and then we, we graduated. Instead of going out in the woods and spending hours looking for a tree, we would go to a warehouse and go through piles of trees uh, as well. And, and then we would we'd grab one, and we'd take it home. And, uh, but before we, we'd set it up, but before we would hang the lights on it and all the ornaments and that kind of thing, we would make a bunch of popcorn and sit down and string popcorn and watch Christmas movies, maybe one or more. You know, movies like White Christmas or Holiday Inn or Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, there were, there were many of them. And, uh, and one of our favorites, or at least one of my wife and I's favorites, was A Christmas Carol. Our youngest daughter, Megan, didn't really care for it. She would say, can I go to bed now? This is a little too spooky for her, in a sense. But we would watch A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And, and I'm sure you probably know that story. It's a story about Ebenezer Scrooge. And his most famous words surrounding the Christmas season were... Yeah, see, everyone pretty much knows that. Bah! Humbug! And uh, he was a man who had no time for the celebration of Christmas. I mean, he was filled instead with the pursuit of profit. He was greedy. He was self-centered. And he cared for no one but himself. And he didn't even do a very good job at that. 
He even despised those who placed the needs of others above their own wealth. And as you probably are familiar with the story, he was first visited by the spirit of his dead partner, Jacob Marley, who came to warn him of the pains that he would suffer in the afterlife if he didn't change his ways and begin to care for mankind. He describes it like he was building a chain, link after link. It was not visible in this life, but link after link, and then heavy burdens that would be uh, heavy burdens of wealth boxes that would be drug around in the afterlife. And so he warns him that he better shape up, so to speak. But then he also tells him that he would be visited by three more spirits in that night, uh, the spirit of Christmas past and present and future. And most of the story actually centers around those visitations of the spirits that came to uh, speak to him about his reclamation, how he needed to change. And in the end, of course, Ebenezer Scrooge becomes a, a changed man. He learns the lessons taught by the spirits and begins to live a new life and celebrate the spirit of Christmas flowing through him day after day, not just on Christmas Day, but all through the year. I mean, you're familiar with that story. Of course, the true story of Christmas is not about the visitation of the spirits <laughs> of past, present, and future, whether yours or anyone else's. It's actually the true story of God visiting this world in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born in very humble manner, and of course he was laid in a manger after his birth. He wasn't found in a palace, but in a, in a pen, so to speak, probably surrounded by animals. And it is of this visitation by God that uh, we read about and that we're going to consider this morning. We read about it, of course, in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus is, is born. And Joseph and Mary go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and uh, baby Jesus is born and laid in the manger. But prior to that, God had spoken to uh, Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, who was a cousin born just months before Jesus was. And we, we, as I thought about this week, it's like we're not quite at Christmas, we're close to it. I thought it'd be like, well, this would be good to do a pre-story, to get to the real story when we get to uh, celebrate at the candlelight service. So our text for today is going to be Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 79. So if you'd turn there, let me read through that, and then we'll kind of focus in on and see what has the Lord has for us this day. Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, 
to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, this is reference to John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we come to this passage and we see Zechariah, again, who is the father of John the Baptist, another miraculous birth, not a virgin birth, but a miraculous birth that God had promised Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who were very old, beyond the age of childbearing, and Elizabeth had been barren her whole life. And God had met the priest, Zechariah, as he was worshiping in the temple and told him that he would have a son, and he was to name him John. And Zechariah had doubted that that could happen because of his age and his wife being barren. And so the angel Gabriel had told uh, Zechariah that he, because of his doubt, the promise would be fulfilled, but his mouth would be stopped until those events took place. In other words, until his child was born. And that's what you read about in most of chapter 1 uh, and and. <laughs> And, and so it came to the day when John was born, and then eight days later when he was to be circumcised, that a bunch of family were gathered around for the circumcision, and they asked what the child was to be named. They would wait until the day of circumcision to name the child, and Elizabeth said, well, he's to be named John, and it's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. No one in the family has the name John, and that was the practice, was to pick someone in the history of the family and name them after that person. And uh, so they're kind of trying to talk Elizabeth out of it. And then Zechariah, who still couldn't speak, picked up a tablet and began to mark it with a stylus. And his name will be John. And at that moment, the Lord loosed his lips and he said his name is John. And all the people wondered about it. it. It tells us, uh, at the end of of uh, that passage in verse 65, fear came upon all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things put them in their hearts saying, what then shall this child be for the hand of the Lord was indeed with him? And that was John the Baptist, not the child Jesus. So it is right after that, apparently, that Zechariah, with his mouth freely opened after nine months, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. And that's the prophecy that we just read moments ago. ago. He, he starts his prophecy with the most fitting line, really, in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And these words came out of one who had, was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 67 says. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And it was the Spirit who produced this poem, prophecy, to come out of his lips. And it was a statement of doxology. Now, honestly, how many of you know what the word doxology means? There you go. That doesn't surprise me. So doxology, you've all heard that word. You maybe think that you've known what it means. So let me just tell you what it means. A doxology is a statement about the glory of God. Doxa, Greek for glory. Logos, the word for word or statement. So what is a doxology? You know, like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right, that, that the sing the doxology. It is a statement of praise of the glory of God. And it is fitting that that is what would come out of his mouth as he is able to speak after nine months. As he considers what the Holy Spirit is leading him to pronounce about an upcoming visit of God with mankind. You know, in Luke 2, in verse 14, we see the same thing come out of the mouth of the angels after Jesus was born. It was a doxology that focused in on the glory of the Most High, right? The glory of the Most High. And it is fitting when we consider the marvelous working of God himself coming into this world uh, with such a humble entrance and an equally humble life and ministry and death that we would begin with a blessing on the glory of God. That's what Zechariah did. It is fitting that the children of God do that. That should be the normal response of the children of God when they consider the goodness of God toward them. You know, as I, as I thought about that, I, I thought of a few examples of that that stand out to me in the scriptures, like First Chronicles 29, a couple of verses there in chapter 10, uh, in, in verse 10, and then verse 20. David is speaking in the presence of the congregation. Uh, they have collected money to build the temple not only money, but materials to build the temple. David wouldn't build it, his son Solomon would. But as they're gathering all this, it says, therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly. And David said this, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Just like Zechariah. And then in verse 20, it says that David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God. So he's not only done it himself, he's telling the congregation to do. bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly, bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. Over in Psalm 72, 17 through 19, we read, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. <laughs> blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That's what the angels saying at the birth of Christ. The glory of the Lord had come into this world in the person of the Son of God. 
Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul says it so well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from Jesus, of, of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Glory to his name forever. Why? Because he's done such a wonderful thing for us. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Very similar. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hmm. You know, the familiar refrain of the people of God as they consider the marvelous work of God and acting in, uh, for the, you know, in, in human affairs, I guess, for his glory and for our benefit is that they bless his glorious name. Don't you feel like blessing his glorious name? Yeah. Well, good. Why don't you do that? Say, bless your glorious name, Lord. Lord. Uh, Come on. If you were at a football game, you'd cheer a lot louder than that. Bless his glorious name. That's right. That's right. So this passage, uh, spoken prophetically by Zechariah, concerning the coming of the Messiah into the world, it actually tells us much truth about the, what we celebrate at Christmas. And let me point these things out for you. Uh, first, it shows us that, and if you're filling in your insert, there's a blank that you want to fill in on this first one. When Jesus was born, it was a visit from God. When Jesus was born, it was a visit from God. Look at, again at verse 68. That's what it, it says exactly. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then again in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, I think most people like the holidays, and most, one of the things they like about it is people coming to visit. Maybe it's kids and, or grandkids or parents going to visit, you know. Uh, most people like them. I mean, sometimes people show up, and we may not really be excited about their visit. But, I, you know, it's generally true that we like people coming to visit it. But the word that is translated here as visited um, is not describing dropping in on someone to say hi. It's not even describing, you know, a family coming to visit your house at the holidays or something like that. Rather, the meaning of this word word is going to see a person on the basis of friendship or family relationship with specific helpful intent to care for or look after that person. And the implication is that there's a reason for concern that produces this visit. It's actually the very same word that is used in James 1.27, where James describes the right kind of religion. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
There's a, a need, a concern, a well, welfare issue at hand, and it requires this kind of visit, not just to say hi, but to care for, to meet a need. And it's also the same word that's found in Hebrews 2, which quotes Psalm 8, and, uh, and, it, and it just talks about God's thoughts and concerns for mankind, using the same word in Hebrews 2, 6. It has been testified somewhere, and by the way, that's the typical way that the author of Hebrews refers to a quote from the Old Testament. It's said somewhere, a reference to an Old Testament book or saying, it has been testified somewhere, and here it is from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? We could put in the same word, visit him, because it's a visit with the idea of caring for that person, meeting a need. And, and as I was thinking through that, that that is the kind of visit that, you know, we read about God coming into this world. But I was thinking about some examples of visiting that happens with God's people. And it's the same kind of idea. You know, it could be Meals on Wheels, which we do here for people. They go into the hospital, they have surgery, and the husband doesn't know how to cook, as in my case. So, you know, someone's going to bring me meals if my wife's in the hospital because they think I'm going to starve. And uh, so they'll, you know, cook a meal and drop it over, and they'll say hi, and we may talk for a while. That's a visit that with an intent to help with a particular need. And sometimes that can be a one-time shot or that could be, it goes on for months as it did with, uh, I remember Lindsay Pepper talking about, it was something like 4,000 meals that were delivered to their house after uh, the death of Josh and Naden. It was, and that most of those was from this group of believers, this small group of believers. That's this kind of visit. That's this kind of visit. And, and then I thought also of, you know, hospital visitations. Uh, haven't been able to do that really in the last year and a half, have we? I mean, someone goes in the hospital, you can't go see them. Even, even a spouse or a child can't get into the hospital to see them. But I remember times where, as a pastor, I would be going to the hospital day after day. And, and some days it was like my hospital day. I would just go from room to room. At, at times with people that were in the hospital. And, and I would go there to be an encouragement to help them, to see if they needed something that someone else in the body could do for them. If, did they need meals on wheels? That's the kind of visit. It's not just say, hey, hi, how you doing? I'm sorry you're in, the, in this hospital bed. No, it's beyond that. And then I was also thinking of Pastor Greg going down to the jail every day as, as a volunteer chaplain down there. He doesn't go to the jail to go and say, hey guys, how you doing? He goes in there because he cares about their spiritual welfare. He cares enough to share the gospel with those that need it and then be an encouragement to young believers that have been caught up in some evil in their life and it's ended them up in jail. That's this kind of visit. And, and so just think, God was so concerned about the spiritual welfare of people that he came for a visit. He visited them. So one of the wonderful truths in the Christmas story is the kindness, the compassion of God in visiting his people with a view to taking care of them, to meeting their need, right? 
And as I thought through that, I thought, well, there are a couple of things I want to point out about that that the text reveals. And, and the first of those, letter A in your insert, if you're filling it in, God, God prophesied he would do this. He prophesied that he would do that. Again, in verse 70, well, verse 67 says that, uh, you know, Zechariah prophesied. But verse 70 says, and as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of, of old. And in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will be, go before the Lord to prepare his way. So it was God who was speaking, but he was doing so through his prophets, right? He was speaking, but doing so through his prophets. That, that is, of course, what we see throughout the scriptures. And I thought of three other passages I'd read to you that demonstrates this. One is Acts 3 and verses 19 through 21. Peter's second sermon after uh, the Holy Spirit had come on the day of Pentecost. He's in the temple, and he and John had been privileged by the Lord to be involved in the healing of a lame man, and it led to an opportunity for him to preach the gospel. And towards the end of his message, he says to the people, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Times of refresh, refreshing may come. Notice what it says from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. What is he referring to? He's referring to the second coming of Christ, the second visit of the Son of God, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. God had spoken throughout the Old Testament about the coming of his son, the visit of the Son of God to this world. Even Jesus spoke about it on the day of his resurrection. He's walking on a road, comes upon two men who are heading away from Jerusalem to a village by the name of Emmaus, and he they didn't recognize him as the, uh, as the resurrected Lord. And he began a conversation with them. And they were describing their despair at the, the fact that the one that they thought was the one, you know, had been crucified. And all their hopes were dashed and all of that. And Jesus says to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's referring to your Old Testament, Right? All that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's telling you that the Old Testament was full of prophecies about the Messiah's coming. And then just verses later, verses 44 through 47... He's with the rest of the disciples. He's appeared and made himself known. And they're, even though they're struggling because of doubt and fear, they, they realize it is the resurrected Lord. And then he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, so in other words, the whole Testament, must be fulfilled. 
and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Thus it is written. What is that talking about? The Old Testament. The prophets who spoke all of this about the visit of the Son of Man, the Son of God. So you, you can maybe think of some of those Old Testament prophecies that would come to mind. You remember the very first one? It's in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned and God comes for a visit. He's walking through the garden. Adam, where are you? They were hiding because they heard the Lord God walking in the garden. And they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed because they had sinned. They had violated the one command, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're hiding and God draws them out of their hiding. And God gives the very first proclamation of the gospel when he says to the woman that, uh, you know, the seed of the serpent is going to be against you, but your seed, the seed of the woman, will conquer the seed of the serpent and crush his head. That was a reference to the Son of God. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, crushing Satan under his foot. But you can think of others, like maybe Psalm 2, which describes the nations rebelling against God, but that God the Father has installed his Son, his beloved Son, as King, and all the nations will come and fall down before him. Better do it while you have an opportunity instead of at a later date when you'll be forced to do it and you'll still pay for your dishonor. Or Psalm 8, I've already mentioned. Or Psalm 22, the beautiful prophecy about the suffering of the Son of God. It describes this crucifixion in detail in Psalm 22. In Psalm 69 and Psalm 89 or Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my footstool. You know, the Lord God, the Father, said to his Son, you're going to reign, and the earth is your footstool. You'll reign over all. Or maybe you jump to the prophecies of Isaiah, and there are many throughout the prophets, but this time of year we think of Isaiah seven fourteen about the promise of a child being born by a virgin. Or you can go to uh, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, that prophesies who he will be, this mighty God, the wonderful counselor, and, you know, and that he, will, he is God and that he will rule forever. These are prophecies about the Son of God who came to visit. Or so, uh, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12, the suffering servant who would believe the report about God's son and what he would do that our iniquities could be paid for. Or you could jump all the way to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 where it tells us where the birth of the Messiah would take place in Bethlehem of, of Epaphra, David's home city. You know, some of the statistics on Jesus fulfilling uh, these prophecies is fantastic. And there was a book written by Peter Stoner called Science Speaks where he talks about the law of 
probabilities as it relates to prophecies. And I just share this with you. Uh, he, he begins with eight prophecies being fulfilled. And he says, we find the probability that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight specific prophecies in one in ten to the 17th power. These are laws of probability or chance, right? So in order to help us comprehend this staggering uh, probability, he illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas, cover the whole state of Texas, you know, that tiny little state down in the lower 48. And, and, and uh, this amount of silver dollars would cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep. Okay, two feet deep. So if you could mark one of those silver dollars and, you know, put it somewhere in that mass of silver dollars, and then you blindfold the man and you turn him around and say, oh, now you can go anywhere, you get one pick to find the silver dollar, and then you get all of the silver dollars. What would the chance be of him getting that one silver dollar? Well, it would be the same chance the same probability that the prophets would have had of writing eight specific prophecies that would come true in any one man. He jumps next to 48 prophecies fulfilled. Remember, this is all under God prophesied he would do this. So, 48 prophecies. He says, we find the probability that any one man fulfilled eight, 48 prophecies to be one in 10 to the 157th power. Not 17th power, but one in 10 to the 157th power. And, and this is really a large number, he says, and represents an extremely small chance. So he says, try to visualize it. The silver dollar analogy is just way too big. Uh, we have to go to something smaller. And he says, well, let's use the electron, because that's one of the smallest things we can think of. And he says, it, it is so small that it will take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power of them laid side by side to make a single line one inch long. That many electrons to make one inch long line. 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power. So if we're going to count the electrons in this line that's one inch long and counted 250 of them each minute, and if we counted day and night, it would take us 19 million years to count just the one inch line of electrons. And if we had a cubic inch of these electrons and we tried to count them, it would take us continually counting 250 each minute, 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years to count them. So he says with this introduction, let's go back to our chance of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Let us suppose that we're taking this number of electrons, marking one, and thoroughly stirring it in the whole mass, and then blindfolding a man and letting him try to find the right one. What chance does he have of picking the right one? Well, what kind of pile of electrons would that be? You think of that. It's beyond our uh, imagination. But it's the same chance of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies. Hmm. 
And then he jumps to 60 prophecies. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And he's kind of stuck too because he didn't really describe it because it's kind of indescribable. He just says Jesus fulfilled over 60 major prophecies in his life with over 300 ramifications to those prophecies. So the possibility is that that happening outside of God's supernatural divine providence is beyond our comprehension. The other ones were beyond my comprehension. God prophesied that he would come and visit. Secondly, God promised he would do this. In 72 and 73 of our text says, to show the tender mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant and the oath, which is a promise, that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we'd be delivered from the hand of our enemy and so on. So, you know, there's not a lot of difference between him prophesying it and promising it. And yet I thought, you know, the idea of promising makes it a little bit more felt. Makes it a little bit more personal, if you will. It's like a dad promising their child. Now, none of us trust politicians when they promise something, do we? Part of that is because we have no relationship with them. But, you know, a dad or a mom promises their child they're going to do that. I mean, the child believes that. And, of course, our Heavenly Father makes promises, and the deal is he keeps them. So God not only prophesied that he was going to visit this needy world, he promised he would do it. He made a covenant, as the word that is used here, a covenant, like in marriage, and he swore an oath or a promise which emphasizes the binding commitment to visit this world, to care for mankind. And, that, and then, you know, a few verses came to my mind, like 2319 of Numbers. God is not man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. And then two rhetorical questions. Has he said, and will he not do it? Yeah. Well, of course he's going to do it if he said it. And, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Of course he will fulfill it if he speaks it. Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul says, I'm a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith that God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies... I think most of the translation says, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began. He promised this. And then a powerful one using multiple words describing the surety of God's commitment, Hebrews six seventeen through 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, right? Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Amen. God prophesied he would visit, and he promised he would, and he did. 
Why did God do this? Why did he make such a covenant and a promise? Why did he prophesy and promise through the centuries that he would visit mankind? Well, that's what Zechariah also tells us. And that's number two on your insert. God visited, God's visit provided the gift of salvation. God's visit provided the gift of salvation. Look at verse 68 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed, or it's really a noun, he has done redemption. He has made redemption for his people. Verse 69, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He raised up a horn of what? Salvation. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 72, to show the tender mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. And verse 77, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins. Why did he visit? To give us a gift. That's what we think about with Christmas and gift giving. The greatest gift ever given was given by God in him giving his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so, you know, we come to Christmas, we, we talk about this every year here at ABF, that Christmas is not properly understood if we leave it in the realm of the little baby born, you know, in Bethlehem, found wrapped in claws and lying in a manger by the shepherds, and, and the mother and the father pondering the things that were said by the angels and the shepherds. I mean, the significance of the birth of Jesus is only understood in the light of why he came, why he was born. He was born to provide the gift of salvation through his own death, burial, and resurrection for needy people. That was what the visit was for, to provide for our need to care for us sinners. And again, in verse 68, you know, it says he redeemed his people. What does that mean? He paid the price. He paid the price that set us free from our slavery to sin. Now, the Jews hearing this, they would have thought of freedom from slavery to Rome. But Christ provided so much better uh, redemption. You know, he, he provides redemption from the great enemy, Satan, right? He's raised up a horn of salvation. That's a beautiful picture of the power of his salvation. You think of rams uh, during rutting season and then banging their horns together. I mean, it's pretty powerful to watch that. And so the horn of the ram was a symbol of power. God has provided a powerful salvation that can deliver any sinner from the grip of Satan. Verse 71, it says we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. So Jesus is pictured as the one who conquers Satan and his allies. His allies? Sin, death, the flesh, the world, the grave, and the host of evil demons that are attacking. In 72, is to show mercy. Mercy, kind of two-sided mercy. Uh, it's withholding 
from us what we rightly deserve, his wrath, and giving us something that we don't deserve, which is his, his compassion. Now, grace is him giving us what we don't deserve, the free gift of eternal life. But the, the positive side of mercy is that God is compassionate. That's one of his beautiful, wonderful attributes that shows itself in the Christmas story and the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He's merciful to those who do not deserve it. He's compassionate. And look at the ministry of Christ, his life ministry. Who was it to? The outcast, the downcast, the sick, the lame, those who are in greatest need, not the proud and the the self-righteous. No, those who knew they were sinners and needed a savior. That's his compassion, his tender mercy showing through. And verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And the word that is translated delivered there is is properly uh, translated as rescued. To rescue from danger with the implication that the danger is acute and it is severe. Well, that is what Jesus did. He came to rescue us. From what? Well, I can think of several things like Matthew 6, 13. The same word is used as like, in, in, in our prayer, deliver us from evil. Second uh, Corinthians one ten, he delivers us from us us from a deadly peril. Colossians one thirteen, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. First Thessalonians one ten, we are delivered or rescued from God's holy wrath. In Second Thessalonians three two, we are delivered rescued from wicked and evil people. And in 2 Timothy 4.18, we are rescued from every evil work. This is the great rescue story. I mean, my kids used to like the rescue cartoons with the mice and all that. Who doesn't love a good rescue story, right? This is the great rescue story. And then in verse 77, he gives knowledge of salvation to people in the forgiveness of their sins. Oh, 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 the joy to know the truth that Jesus came and brought full knowledge that sinners can be rescued, saved from the consequence of their sin. And that is happening through forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness. What does that mean, forgiveness? Well, it means the slate has been wiped clean. The the Lamb of God has taken away our sins. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west uh, from us. He's, He's buried them in the deepest sea. He's blotted them out as the clouds blot out the sun, the prophet says. The the. The decree of guilt that was against us has been nailed to the tree forever left there, not on us. God will remember our sins no more because Jesus bore them as he was crucified and hung on the tree. He bore our sins, not his, for he had none. Forgiveness. Oh, the joy of forgiveness. Lastly, we see Zechariah's prophecy that God's visit to this world was with more in mind than merely providing, you know, the gift of salvation. That's pretty broad if you think about it. 
but it's in the sense of delivering us from not only the penalty of sin, but also he shows that God's visit completely changes us. It transforms us. That is the beauty of the gospel. We've talked about that in the book of Philippians. And that's verses 74 and 75 and, and, and 79. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And in 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So do you live life without fear? That's what he came to give us. That's part of the gift, to live life without fear. Now that, as I was thinking through that, I was like, our world is filled with fear. Fear of COVID, fear of violence, fear of, just name it, fear of the economy, fear of the politicians, fear of what people are going to, I mean, we live in a fear-filled world. And he grants us that we can live and serve him without fear. Hmm. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 56.4 says, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Or 1 John 4, 17 and 18, by this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also we in this world, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's the fear of his judgment, the fear of the consequence of sin. His love has taken that away. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Second Timothy 1 says, 1 7 says, God has not given a spirit of fear, but of love and a sound mind, self control. Isaiah 41, verse 10 says, Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I'm your God. I, I, I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are you living without fear? Are you living in holiness and righteousness? I mean, the beauty of what Jesus did for us puts us in a standing of being seen by God as holy, not unholy, right? As righteous, because he's imputed the righteousness of Christ to us, not as unrighteous. That's our standing. But God wants more than our standing. He wants our living in holiness and righteousness. So I thought of Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and, and put on the new self created in, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what he's really saying there is be what you actually are. Live what God has already made you to be. Holy and righteous. We live before him all our days. <laughs> so, you know, Christmas, it's really, for most people, it's just temporary celebration of a few days. But our salvation is not intended to be an event. It is intended to be a life-changing thing where we live before him in this life and the life to come. 
I was thinking of Psalm 16, 9 through 11, where it kind of describes what life before him is. And it should be in this life and the life to come. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. In other words, I won't fear. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, before him all our days, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that where you're living? Before him each day? That's where he wants you to live. That's where he wants each of us who know him to live this life and the life to come, and he directs our feet into the way of peace. Verse 77 says, talks about Jesus being the light, and through him we have, you know, peace with God. Jesus, uh, Jesus is the light and life, right? Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but what will have the light of life. He said it in John eight twelve and John twelve forty six, And then Romans 5, 1. What a wonderful verse. Therefore, have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He directs our feet into the way of peace. Not only does he give us peace in standing before God, but he gives us his very peace in the midst of this world in which we live that is so filled with fear. So, Have you recognized the time of God's visitation? Have you? I hope you have. In the story of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, once again, you know, there's a change that takes place in him. He becomes a different man because of all the, 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 the visits of the three spirits. And he, his plea to the last of the three spirits was significant. He said, Spirit, hear me. I'm not the man that I was. I'm not I will not be the, the man I must have been but for this intercourse. And then when he wakes up after the third spirit leaves him, he reaffirms his promise, saying, I will keep my promise. I will keep the spirit of Christmas each and every day. Well, that's just a fictional story. It's, it, it's, you know, it's moving. It's moving. It's a, kind of a wonderful story, if you will. But it's a fictional story communicating how Having kindness in your heart and doing good to your fellow man is important. It is. It is. But the story of God visiting people in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save them from their sins, cause them to serve him throughout their life and uh, deliver them into his presence forever. That's a true story. That's a true story, not a fictional one. It's the story where God shows his compassion and kindness to sinful people who deserve his wrath. And the question is whether you've recognized his visitation as that. You know, even in the days of Jesus, there were many people, probably most people, who did not recognize that his life and ministry was evidence of a visitation from God. And he wept that that was so. You read about it in, in, the, in Luke 19. He's heading from Bethany to Jerusalem to enter into what is called his triumphal entry, but it really is the beginning of his last week of suffering. 
and he, as he comes over a rise and looks down across the valley and up the other side and sees the city of Jerusalem, the beauty of it, he begins to weep and he cries out, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you, tear you down to the ground, you and your children with, within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Isn't that the way the world feels to most believers now? Like the whole world is coming against us. Our world is being torn down around us. What is going to deliver us from fear? What is going to deliver us you know, into peace? It's knowing the time of the visitation of God what Jesus did at his first coming and what he will do at his second coming, his second visitation. So if you're here today and, and you, don't know, you have not known what this story is really about, I would urge you today, know the time of his visitation, why he visited to provide salvation through his own death, burial, and resurrection. He He paid for sin so that you might be set free, forgiven from your sin. And there's nothing that you can do to have that happen other than just to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So if you haven't done that, please do it. And quiet over your own heart, just tell God that's what you want. But if you are here today, and probably most of us, we've known the time of his visitation. We're celebrating it this time of year, aren't we? We are. But all the more, let's think of this great story. And I encourage you to rejoice afresh in Christ Jesus, your great Savior and Lord. For sure, we have known and we have who have known and understood and believed in the Son of God should be like Zechariah. And out of our mouth should pour these words, bless, bless the Lord God, for he has visited and redeemed us. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for our Savior. We pray that we'll honor him, not just at this time of year, but particularly as we think about his first coming, his birth. We are mindful of why he was born. that you might provide for us forgiveness of sin, eternal relationship with you, being saved from what we rightly deserve. Thank you for this wonderful story. Pray that we'll live in a way that honors it. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.